Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another riveting swing through podcast land. I heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend who heard it from another you've been messing around. I'm Jeff Wallenitz, and this is OK So. This week, we did this thing cross country. I talked to Doug Knopper, former co CEO and founder of Freewheel, current very serious quarantiner, and one of the most likable guys you'll ever meet. Doug and I chatted about the impact of this novel coronavirus on his son Ben's senior year of high school how he made it to ad tech, his own political activism, and what he's been doing since he moved on from Freewheel. As always, I beseech you, follow us on Twitter at PodcastOKSO, and if you like what you hear, give us five stars on iTunes. Okay, so welcome everyone to another episode of OKSO. I'm your host, Jeff Wallenitz, which I hope you know by now. Uh, With me today is Doug Knopper. Doug, welcome. Hi, Jeff. How you doing, man? Good. How are you doing? We're doing great over here. How is um, how's Palo Alto quarantine? I haven't talked to anyone outside of New York in a while, so you know it's it's if you have to be quarantined somewhere, it's like seventy five degrees and blue sky here pretty much every day. I was going to do it outside, but it was a little too windy today. Um, you know, we're hunkered down. We're going on eight weeks, I think now. Um, I've been to the grocery store two twice, maybe maybe three times. This entire time, but I'm kind of you know that that type of social introvert that I and I already worked at home, so it's like yeah, I don't even notice a real difference. Yeah, we were talking about this a little bit before. Like everybody's definition of quarantine is sort of wildly different, but it yes. sounds like ours are fairly well aligned, so that's good. Yeah, totally. And there's and as I told you too, there's been some unexpected moments of family joy, which have been nice. We the family takes a walk pretty much every night, which we would n- never have done. Um, and my son has become nocturnal, my 18 year old. So basically goes to bed around four in the morning and wakes up, you know, around noon or one and we see him for a couple of hours and then he goes back to bed. Oh my God. I love that. So wait, let's stay with Ben for a minute because (laughs) Ben is graduating high school and there's sort of like this, is he even going to report to his freshman year, which must be both. I would imagine it's distressing to him in some measure, but maybe comforting in some measure too. I don't, what's, how's he feeling? Like it must be an emotional roller coaster. It's very distressing. So on the one hand, high school just sort of ended. There's no prom, there's no sports, there's no activities. We just found out that, and he's been active in this, that graduation is postponed till December. So at, at kind of the earliest, so there's not going to be any graduation activities. They're in somewhat of virtual classes. I mean, the, the whole senior class is already checked out anyway. And so they don't really, you know, give a shit about what's going on. Um, but he has to do, it's all pass fail. So he has to do a minimum amount of things. To, and he's kind of figured out what it takes to get, I think passing is a C minus. So, you know, if I do nine of the 18 assignments, then I'll pass. And that's all he cares about. Um, yeah, it's classic game the system. Totally. And the bigger challenge is, uh, you know, school, college starts, he was accepted to Georgetown. He'll theoretically start there at the end of August, but we don't know, you know, what that date is. And the school is, you know, rightfully so, has not given us anything. So the hardest part is that he's supposed to be in this era of, you know, separating from the parents that, you know, in, the, in a couple of months, he's supposed to move out. And ironically, it's in the stage where he's, it's the opposite of separating from the parents. We're together 24 seven and, you know, can't, we live in a small house. We can't get outside of each other's way. 
which is why he's moved to nocturnal status, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, it's even worse, I guess, than it was um, when he was a senior in high school, which is he saw you guys, but he could leave the house and go hang out with his buddies until you know midnight or whatever, and then come home. Yeah, totally. Oh, there's no there's no hanging out with buddies that that ended. He he did. He said a couple of nights where they went to a park and they socially distanced hung out, I guess, is that a word now? Yeah, that's and, it. Um, and, you know, we were kind of okay with that, but it's uh, even, that seems to have ended now too. Is there any consideration from him around, or have you guys started thinking through like what a gap year might look like in the event that Georgetown says we're shot for the fall semester so or something? Apparently gap year searches on Google, I read about this the other day, are up like 130% or something like that. And the problem is that there's no place to go. It's not like the Peace Corps is open or Teach for America or camps or you can't, you know, go work in, you know, a, a factory or something. Yeah, so, kibbutz in Israel. Yeah, yeah, I'm right. It's I mean, he's not flying to Israel. Um, <laughs> so uh, we're, you know, it's the the alternative is like he lives in the basement and becomes nocturnal and plays video games for you know 24 seven or 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 12 seven. 12-7 is the case maybe. His waking hours, yes. Yeah. So I'm inclined to like put him on a plane and send him to Georgetown. And if they're not open, he can just hang out there. Yeah, that that actually makes a lot of sense. And frankly, yeah, I was talking <laughs> about this with someone earlier today, which is, you know, even if you're home for the summer from college, like classes are about to end now. It's not like you can yeah. go get a summer job. No, right. No. So, so everybody's like this right now, whatever year you're in. It's just that he has, you know, on top of it, he misses all of the graduation activities and the sort of accolades and celebration that comes with that. And, you know, and on top of it, then he gets the the isolation that everybody has right now. So whatever, I, I assume they'll look back on this like, you know, people that lived through the war or other, you know, traumatic times, like, remember that time back when I was 18? But we'll see. <laughs> totally. And I look, I feel my daughter's going through something like that on a micro level. She's going from fifth to sixth grade, which mm -hmm. is the middle school year here. And yeah. like her fifth grade graduation has been canceled. And like these kids are crestfallen. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, Ben is obviously he's 18. So yep. in that respect, he's probably more emotionally mature than my daughter would be around about it. But it's uh, still heartbreaking, right? It's heartbreaking. Don't make any assumptions <laughs> like that, Jen. <laughs> Fair enough. But yes, it is heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so let's, okay, let's turn the page. Let's talk about you a little bit. So awesome. where did it all start for Doug? Where are you from? Uh, just outside of Detroit, Michigan, suburban Detroit. And tell me about it. What did your, so how'd your parents wind up there? Uh, that's a damn good question. It's a little bit unknown. Um, you know, their parents were first generation, oh, mostly first generation moved here, but it was the automotive industry. Everybody moved to Detroit in the, you know, the early 1900s and my parents were just recipients of that. Got it. And did your dad work for the automotive industry? Um, he was a doctor and he served, almost all of his patients were in the automotive industry. They were either executives or uh, people that worked in the factories. Got it. And, and Detroit, the Detroit area is split into, at that time, it was split into kind of three quadrants. You have the Chrysler area, the Ford area, and the General Motors area, kind of based on where their factories in there. And, and his office was kind of at the center of that. So he, he tapped into all three of those. He had, had employees from Chrysler, Ford, and GM. And, and the reason that that's important is they all had amazing healthcare benefits in that time. So it was, it was great to be able to have all the automotive company patients. 
So he, he super strategic, place lucrative thing yeah. for him. Yeah, right on. And then, so, and you had two brothers, right? You have two brothers. I do. Yeah. Yep. I'm the middle child. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, we'll dig at that <laughs> separately. <laughs> so, what was it like growing up in Detroit in that time? Because to some extent, um, that was kind of sort of post, like post that's like the riots in Detroit, right? Yeah, in, yeah. In the no, 60s, I remember but that. Also, yeah. before the imports kind of came and started to hollow that business out. So, what was it like growing up in Detroit when you were there? Well, so I grew up during all of that. I'm old enough to to say that I lived through the riots, and I remember them. I don't want to say vividly, but I remember them occurring. And then even you know older, I remember the you know the import the arrival of all the imports into Detroit and the and the oil crisis and stuff like that. And it was there was a time when like last person out of Detroit turned the lights out. Um, I went to University of Michigan undergrad. And it was, it was not a good time to be in Michigan. And that was, you know, as a result, that was one of the first things I did was get the hell out of town after I graduated, um, after a brief stint of, of working um, in downtown Detroit, which was like a riot zone, a war zone at that time. Um, but I did go back after, uh, after graduate school for a couple of years. And I've been back recently. And, and I mean, up, I don't know what it's like now the last couple of months with, with what's going on. But it was it was a totally vibrant uh, you know, kind of what I picture Soho was in New York, you know, I guess what 40, 50 years ago, like artists doing interesting things and buildings, you know, squatters and buildings being taken over and painted bright colors and stuff. It's pretty amazing now. Um, everybody that I know that lives in Detroit is like you can't even imagine what it's like. Yeah, that is the first step toward regeneration, right? If you get this critical mass of some group of people who are willing to live there and turn it into a community, the next step is get people who want to live in that kind of community and then property values start to go up and and things begin to move. But when you were in high school, did those types of racial issues spill over into your high school? How segregated was it when you were growing up? And I'm using that word very loosely, obviously. Yeah, yeah. wasn't segregation era, but how divergent were the neighborhoods, that sort of thing? So I grew up in probably one of the whitest suburban areas ever. Um, I mean, just to to like put a th- thing on it, I was the only Jewish person in my high school, at least that I knew of. Um, you know, every, that was willing year, to admit it. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Every year growing up, it was like, you know, we're going to celebrate Christmas and now Doug's going to come in and tell us about Hanukkah. <laughs> and so I was really good at telling the story of Hanukkah. Um, and uh, it was, that's just how it was in Detroit. Um, it's changed a, a little bit, but not a lot of it for sure. And it's, um, it is still the suburban Detroit neighborhoods. Many of them are still probably as not segregated, but as differentiated as you can possibly get more so than probably almost any other community, as I understand it. It, it was not optimal conditions for growing up. Totally. And so it's, it's, it's Flint and Bloomfield Hills, right? Like that's the, and kind of nothing in between. Yeah. Flint is not really suburban. It's kind of a separate area, but yeah, it's, it's, you're absolutely right. It's very similar to that. And so you went to Michigan. What'd you study at Michigan? I studied um, basically how to get out as quickly as I could, um, and I, I had a, uh, I, I got a, a degree, two degrees in, in uh, communications and in psychology, which I think go together pretty well, 
and then uh, you know and explain a lot by the way yeah <laughs> yeah right that, that's uh, that's how I made it through um, and uh, and graduated and then went off and started my uh, illustrious career working in the advertising world of which communications and psychology are intricately linked yeah in no specific order either that's right. um, are you one of these like psychotic Michigan yes. fans like you are so you no no your no face I, I saw that I thought you were asking me if I'm psychotic. Um, oh. <laughs> that's what I'm no, I am not a psychotic Michigan fan. I am a fan for sure, but I'm sort of an amateur fan. I will say that going to a, a football game in the big house in Ann Arbor is one of the most amazing sporting events you could ever do. Um, I'm, I'm much more of a Detroit Tigers fan than I am of almost a, of any other Michigan sport. Um, but I, but yeah, I would say that I'm, I'm more of a Michigan fan than, you know, the average person. Got it. Can you, you know, all the words to hail to the victors? I, I, I know enough to say hail to the victors and then <laughs> blah, 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 blah. I can get through it. That's plenty. I think it's usually yeah. when you sing it, you're, you're semi drunk. And then let me ask you another sports question. Since you brought up the tigers, where do you, you know, stand? I know nothing about sports, right? I do. But I'm going to okay, ask you this right. question if you're a Detroit Tigers fan who was in the area at this time, where do you stand on Alan Trammell in the Hall of Fame? Do you have a position on this? I don't. All I want to say is I'm mourning Al Kaline, oh. who just passed away recently. Yes. And, and uh, the 1968 Tigers um, were, as far as I'm concerned, the greatest baseball team in the history of baseball, bar none. And you cannot, I don't care what bullshit you're going to pull out and say, what about the 52 Mets or, or anything like that? The, the 68 Tigers were the best, in my opinion. You can't talk me out of that. Okay, so two, two things. Super hot take, number one. I like it. That's what we're looking for here. Number two, you just, you sort of underscored how little you know about score, sports by talking about the 1952 Mets, since that club didn't actually come into existence until 1960. Okay, whatever. 69 so, Mets. <laughs> there you go. I was trying to go back further. <laughs> That's too much. Rick Manler will yell at me for that. He will. He'll call you on this. He'll probably text you uh, in our little thing. <laughs> Immediately. We'll all hear about it. Yeah. So how'd you get into advertising? What, what was your first, your first gig in advertising? Well, I, I had worked in throughout college. I had worked as an intern um, at a radio station, which was, you know, when you're in college being a radio station, a rock radio station and driving around like the rock van and doing all, going to concerts and stuff like that is, is Nirvana. It was, it was totally awesome. No pun intended. Um, and I sort of wanted to stay in the world of broadcasting or um, in special events or promotions. Um, I went, I, I got a brief job at an advertising agency, a brief stint at J. Walter Thompson in Detroit, working on the Ford account at that time. And that was in between undergrad and grad school. And then, and then I went off to grad school and um, uh, sort of broadened my horizons a little bit, but stayed in the advertising world following that. And so ultimately you landed at DoubleClick, which is where you entered the glorious world of advertising yeah, totally. technology. Yes. Yep. So, which, you know, is, is what I, whenever anyone asks me if I work in media, I say I work in media adjacent. Um, so <laughs> tell me about your experience at DoubleClick and how it sort of led you to John and Freewheel. Yeah. So in, in 2000, I was working, I was in New York and I was working at an advertising agency and um, actually the story and why I went to DoubleClick was I, I knew that I wanted to get out kind of the 
the external backdrop was like Netscape was going public and DoubleClick and all these companies, you know, growing at 5 million percent per year. And I was working at an advertising agency on the Mentadent toothpaste account, which is mm. a Unilever company. And we had our annual planning session and the, the director said, we're going to this year, he banged his fist on the table and said, we're going to grow at our market share by 1.2%. And everyone cheered and clapped. And I was like, wait a minute, all these companies are growing by like 5 million percent. And, and I'm, you know, we're, we're cheering 1%. Now, of course, 1% market share in the toothpaste world is like $5 billion or something, you know, crazy like that. And so I, I left and I joined DoubleClick, which was an amazing experience. I joined pretty much the day the stock market crashed. So I'm used to this stuff happening. Um, and we rode, rode that down for a while. And then um, those six years I were there were the best thing that ever happened in my career. I started um, as a, I was head of account management and I quickly became head of sales and then became general manager and then added, uh, took over the research business. We, we acquired a couple of companies and then took over the whole um, publisher and advertiser and research group. And then for most of my time there, I was the head of the global technology group, um, spent uh, some time in London running that, spent most of the time in New York, spent a lot of time on airplanes. And it was just, it was an amazing experience. And then ultimately I was part of the team that sold it um, the first time for a billion. And that my division the, after after the first sale is what was cleaned up and then sold to Google for $3 billion. Amazing. And also throughout that time, I mean, you sort of glossed through six unbelievable years, but throughout that time you met the cast of characters that oh, would yeah. ultimately really define early Freewheel, right? Melissa totally. and Diane and John and everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and so what happened was I left at the end of 2005 and ended up moving to the West coast. Um, and it's not important Did a did a side thing for a while. Um, and then ran into John who had also moved to the West coast. We were both living in the Bay area and both sort of trying to figure out what was next. Um, and, and what we should do. We were both interviewing for the same CEO position, which was interesting and comparing notes. And we talked about, should we job share and what, you know, what are the opportunities? What should we do? And we, you know, not surprisingly came up with this idea and I'll give John all the credit for it or most of the credit for it. And cause I can't give him all the credit. And <laughs> we came up, you know, with the idea for what free will was and, and then, quickly ran up by Diane within a month or two and, and she joined, um, you've all heard the stories about this and we, uh, we started the company and then got financing. And then as you're right, reached out to Melissa and Brent and Alex and people who I'm sure I'm forgetting, but, um, uh, Laura and, and started free will at the beginning, early 2007. And then it was rode that rocket ship. Yeah. And so the two legendary, Freewheel stories that I always talk about are how, you know, John basically drew out the concept like on a napkin. Mm -hmm. um, and then also that there is some dispute, although I believe you settled this at one of our, um, <laughs> one of our summits, um, the actual founding date of Freewheels yeah. um, as being either Valentine's Day or the day after. So I can confirm both of those. There is a drawing that John has made. It is not in a napkin. It's, it was in his notebook. I have a, a copy of that. And I can proudly show what that is. Uh, to this day, it's still undecipherable. It, you, it's it's gibberish. It's, John can interpret it what it means, but if you if John had drawn that out for me and said, "Here, you go start this company," I'd have no idea what to do with that. Um, oh, hundred percent. 
Yeah, um, he's mad scientist all totally. the way, right? Yeah, totally. Um, it is confirmed that, I mean, we had started our conversations prior to Valentine's Day 2007, but I can, I have confirmation, I have emails, and John disagrees with this, but it's hard to dispute the facts when it's his email that says <laughs> on, on February 14th, 2007, he wrote an email to a bunch of friends saying, hey, I'm announcing that we are starting this company. So I have that email and nobody can ever say that's not true. We started the company officially on Valentine's Day, 2007. It is perfectly in character for John that even in the face of that evidence, he still refuses to oh, yeah, for admit sure. fake that news. is. <laughs> yeah, that's, fake news. that's exactly right. <laughs> um, and so actually, you know, again, so you started the company, you talk about joining DoubleClick when the economy crashed. You start free will in 2007, like a year and a half later, the economy cratered again. Yeah. Um, and you guys had to weather that storm. Um, but once you got past that, I mean, I don't want to say it was all downhill, but things sort of started to move for you. For you. I mean, I totally. came on in 14, but that was sort of five years after. Well, and it's, it is a valuable lesson to look at um, what happened during that time. So yes, some bad things happened to us. We did a financing round in 2000, beginning of 2008. Turns out that was sorry, beginning of 2009, turns out that was a bad time to raise funds and, and to run out of money. And we did, we took a down round, which, which hurt. It was really like a flat round. Um, but that hurt particularly when we went to sell the company, um, in, in how the dilution impacted everybody. Um, so, you know, there were some bad things that happened for sure, but, the, but on the positive, which I think is probably analogous to what we're going through today, a lot of really good, interesting things came out of that time. You know, amazing companies were started during that time in the 2000 kind of eight, nine period where you have Uber and Airbnb and, you know, Facebook really gaining prominence. But even for us, we didn't really have any competition. There was nobody that, you know, no, there were no companies that were starting from scratch at that point that could really give us a run for the money. And so we had a wide playing field and we went to all these TV companies ABC and NBC and, and Fox and Turner and so on and said, here's what we have. And you're about to enter this field. And, and for them too, it was an opportunity where the market wasn't really heated up. And what we were offering was something that, that fit. And uh, it, it, it was perfect timing for us in retrospect. Yeah. And, and that was why Turner bought in, frankly, you know, when Joey came to us and said, well, what do you guys think? Um, we were all like, this is unlike anything we've right. ever seen. And Time Warner Investments, you know, also agreed they were one of the one of the early um, early round backers. The the st another story that I always tell, which I love, is that John and Melissa came to demo the product for me, and the early version of the product had a zero point zero in it and an eleven in it, referencing <laughs> Pluto's GPA <laughs> yes, in Animal right. House, and eleven in Spinal Tap. Turn it up to eleven. John looks yeah. at everyone in the room and says you guys can tell me the movie references, we'll give you a year for free. And Melissa's like stabbing <laughs> him under the table. Um, <laughs> yes, I've heard that story because you knew the references and we had to renege on giving it to you a year for free. Yeah, which was okay. I just like, I just liked that I got it and people had to back down. Um, <laughs> where did Papa Smurf come from? Was that Megan Baker? No, that was actually DoubleClick. There was a year when the DoubleClick team for Halloween all dressed up as Smurfs and I was Papa Smurf and, and the whole team all were, were, you know, the blue creatures. And then there was a, a big graphic of me holding up Papa Smurf sign 
and it just was in my office forever and that just came in and it has since been my icon i think it's still i know it's for sure it's my google icon and i think linkedin and maybe facebook too and that just it just has stuck and i've never uh, i've never let it go yeah it i mean it's it certainly followed you the but what i love about it is it's both you know like a very good costume for you as the overall leader of some group of human beings who are following you everywhere. But also it's like so in character for you. Um, and one of the things that struck me when I joined the company, if I can flatter you for a moment um, in front of oh, hundreds geez. of listeners, um, is that, you know, you really genuinely care about your employees in a personal way that goes well beyond, I think, um, what many CEOs of an organization would do. Um, and your management style, I think, brings that out in people. Well, thank you for saying that. I appreciate the kind words. It's look, I think that it was a key to our success at Free Will was the team that we built and how we treated them and how they treated us and how we all sort of managed through this together. And um, you know, I mentioned this earlier when you and I were chatting is we just had a Free Will sort of mini alumni get together on Zoom. And there were probably 30 people in the, the Brady Bunch view and everybody was just showing old photos, making photos of old presentations they had done or pictures or things that we had done as their backdrops. And everybody was just laughing. It was just like, like you just immediately reverted back to the good old days. And, and it was really, really fun. And I think, I think that is, you know, uh, you know, more than 50% of, of the ingredients of building a successful company. And I think it's, it's you know, not to get sort of fast forward to now, but I just did a presentation for a bunch of other CEOs on how, how you treat your company today, your team, is really, really critical to the success of the company and how you get through this pandemic crisis. And I, I just feel to me that that is the, the key to success. It's, it's spot on. Corporate culture, good or bad is really meaningful to the employee experience, good or bad. Totally. Um, and when I, you know, when I came to Freewheel, right before I started, the New York uh, group had a Christmas party. Um, this was days before I started. And um, I came in and I was just amazed by the party itself. And I, you know, I sort of knew I made, I made a good decision. We, we um, let you in before you were an employee? I can't yeah, actually, that. and I remember Paige Robinson came up to me <laughs> and was like, "Hey, great to see you!" But you were kind of having our Christmas party. I'm like, "Yeah, I know they hired me. I'm here now. <laughs> I work. I work here now." Um, so you know, very briefly, 2014 rolls around, beginning of 2014, and phone call comes in from Comcast, and you start to have these conversations about, "Are we ready to do this?" What was going through? Like, what was that process like? Well, it's actually. Yeah, it's a, it's it's much. There's much more history to it. So we actually had two offers to sell the company. We even had another one earlier. In the in the history of the company, we had four offers to sell the company over Google very early on, um, and then we got into a bidding war in 2011 between Adobe and Akamai. Um, and for a very very long story, we'd have to do a whole another podcast on it. Um, that fell through. And uh, in 2014, we started talk. Actually, it was more 2013. We spent about a year on a strategic relationship with Comcast, which was really more of a customer relationship. We were they were looking at us as a vendor. We were looking at them as a customer. And every meeting got deeper and deeper. And and at, at one point, that sort of the lights came on for John and I and Diane, and said, you know, the, this is not going to turn into a customer relationship. This is going to turn into something bigger. 
took them a little bit longer to come to that conclusion, but it was, it was definitely a, an evolution. It was, it, this all started out as, as, you know, it is a very typical customer relationship and then became something strategic. So when, when the offer sort of finally came in, um, which also took a long time to, to get through, it wasn't something like, you know, came out of the blue and, and, you know, they just decided like, oh, hey, one day we're going to buy. We we sort of knew it and, and we're at that point, we're orchestrating on how it was going to happen. Got it. So you're in this like very um, lengthy courtship dance totally. over the course of those that time. Yeah, totally. Um, and so let's talk a little about your post Comcast life. So mm-hmm. you've been kind of out on your own I, and you have your hands in a lot of different things, which I think is is <laughs> probably really interesting to you, right? You You have your board membership in Talaria and you do some angel investing. And I know you're very politically active, which I definitely want to talk yeah. a little bit about. Um, yeah. But does all that stuff scratch the itch or is part of you like, what's my, I mean, cause I know John is like, he's like starting another company right now and he probably has four other ideas sitting behind that. Um, but your personality is significantly different than that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is all of this scratching the itch for you or is there something else coming? You know, it's it's funny because when I knew that I was going to leave Comcast and for maybe the last, I don't know, year or so there, I was sort of winding down and I started to, um, It's I live in Silicon Valley and there's a million companies out here and there's a whole bunch of CEOs that are new to being a CEO and, and I, you know, in almost 20 years of being either a general manager or CEO, I'd learned a couple of things along the way. Um, and so I started working with them and just spending some time at companies and with CEOs and and I just found that I was getting a ton of fulfillment and gratification out of that. And, and there, there has not I've been out now three years, I think. And, and there has not been that itch to return to full-time operating life. I'm, today I'm on, I think I'm on four boards, maybe five. I can't remember. It's scary. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm advising a whole bunch of companies, more than 20, which is, you know, just sort of spending an hour, a month or two, um, you know, with, with these CEOs. And I, I do, I have a couple of consulting projects going on, usually M&A diligence work. And it's, and I love the diversity of it. I love, I, I tell people it's, it's all the fun stuff of being a CEO without any of the pressure. Um, I work with a lot of VCs. I work with a lot of boards. I sit in, in a lot of board meetings um, and it's, I, it's totally gratifying to me. And I really, really am enjoying seeing, helping grow these companies and, you know, maybe passing along some of the things that I've learned along the way. So for, for me, that's, that's what's scratching the itch at this point. And what about politics? So <laughs> we don't need to dive too deep into specific views or anything, but what Why, is it about going on in politics right now? I, I don't actually know. I don't watch the news. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't actually know. Um, the, um, the, you know, because you've spent a little time raising money for politicians and campaigning. What is it about, I mean, politics, obviously we're all and all should be invested in the future of the company and how the the company, I'm going to cut this part out, Uh, the future (laughs) of the country, (laughs) um, and making sure that we actually have a future of the country, um, but what is it about politics beyond that that you find interesting? Well, I, I've always been fascinated by politics and, and the U.S. political system in general. I've always been a student of it and have always had some level of political aspiration. Um, earlier in my my history, I thought about running for office, but never got there and 
now don't really want to do that in this climate. Um, but when I started having some more free time and turns out that Palo Alto is like an ATM machine for this, this crazy world of politics where politicians need to raise money. And so we're specifically, my family, my wife and I are very active members of a group of families in Palo Alto that are um, loyal or maybe disloyal members of the resistance, if you will. I won't go too much into my political um, leanings, but you can probably guess what that is. And we spent have spent a lot of time in the last um, three or four years specifically helping um, to flip the house, which we did in 2018, and now working very aggressively to flip to, to maintain the house, which is at risk again, um, and to see if we can flip the Senate. And so we've met... Um, I think my wife, Abby, who's more active in this than I am, um, mentioned not too long ago that she has met 30 senators, um, you know, uh, active senators who hold seats. That's amazing. We've had um, a number of them in our house. We've we've met, uh, you know, a a whole bunch of representatives and, and, you know, working actively on their campaigns. Depending on what COVID does, we're we're planning. Uh, assuming that my son um, goes to college in the fall, we're planning to go stay with some friends in Michigan and and uh, campaign actively campaign for the month of October through the election um, for Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan eight. And uh, it's something that's very important to us, and we've spent time and energy and and money on it. And so far, knocking wood, it's it's all going in the right direction, at least the the direction we wanted to go in. Right. And to what extent were your or are your political beliefs informed by your upbringing and where you grew up specifically and some of the stuff we talked about earlier around the riots and racial injustice and those sorts of things? Well, I'm sure I'm sure a lot of that plays into, you know, my formation and my development. But I will say that that growing up and through the kind of the eighties, I was an active Republican. I worked on, believe it or not, um, Ronald Reagan's campaign in George Bush, the first campaign. No kidding. Um, and I, w- I was sort of actively involved, you know, at a low level. Um, and then I kind of went dormant for a while and then, uh, sorry, this is going to be, you know, my political leanings here, but I think the Republicans got a little crazy and too crazy for me. And I, I left and moved over to the democratic party and still was sort of just marginally involved. Um, and then, you know, at that time too, I was running companies and raising a family and, you know, doing things that I was, I didn't have time or energy or money to be involved in that. Um, and then, you know, in the last couple of years, as, as things progressed uh, even more aggressively is when we got really, really involved at also, you know, sort of the right time of life for us to be involved too, stage of life. And so, just to have a like a quasi-philosophical conversation here, there seems to be this push and pull on the left now that is, do you favor incrementalism, right? How are we taking small incremental steps? Um, some might call that moderate in the right direction, or do you just sort of blow up the whole thing? Um, are you a democratic socialist, for instance? Do you just believe that we need to rip the Band-Aid and, and fix all these things right now, otherwise we're never going to get there? Do you find yourself saying, look, I'll take anything over, over the, the alternative, or are you specifically pulled one way or the other? So I am first and foremost a pragmatist, uh, and I want to see us, this country put back onto a course where we are 
we can say that we are a, a country that's focused on, you know, number one that has integrity and, uh, you know, honor in its heart. We, we believe in science. We believe in data. We believe in education. We believe in getting ahead of our problems and solving them in a way that is beneficial to our, um, you know, our, our population. Um, so first and foremost, uh, that's what I believe in. You know, in in a, I am not a democratic socialist by any stretch. Although you know, I, there was a world where I, I probably would have survived if Bernie were president, um, or you know, thrived. Um, but I I first and foremost want to see us get some level of change and get back to a path that um, I, I I am proud of. You know, make America proud again. And you know, after that, then I th- I think there's so much that we can do and need to do. Um, I, we could go down a whole bunch of different paths. What I'm most afraid of is that even if we do, if if Uncle Joe wins in the fall and you know we do get a, a smooth sailing, it's going to be very very similar to when Obama won in 2008 and then came in in 2009 and just had a freaking you know dumpster fire that he had to deal with and it's and you know wasn't able to get much accomplished that you wanted some things obviously. Um, I think we're going to be in that same similar situation coming out of the mess that we're in right now. And so, all right, I'm going to change the subject abruptly and wildly here. (laughs) Awesome. You are a Tesla enthusiast is how I would characterize you. And so you got to tour the factory, didn't you? You were on the factory floor. What was that like? Clean as a whistle. So, okay, this, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, nerd out a little. Our, Go ahead. Our, yeah. No, I'm going to bookend our entire conversation. So I grew up in Detroit, right? In Detroit, you know, most my wife grew up in California, and outings in elementary school and middle school, they they went to the beach. In Detroit, you went to the Rouge River um, Ford factory, um, and and you saw metal being stamped and Mustangs being made. So I did that at least once a year growing up, and and it was my recollection of that is the these plants were dirty, disgusting places, smoky, you know, sooty places that you never want to hang out. The Tesla factory was the complete opposite. You could eat, you could sit there and eat on the floor. The robots were work that are working on putting the cars together were fascinating. Um, it was just as, as clean and completely opposite. I'm sure in fairness, I'm sure the Ford factory is, is like that today. I, I'm not sure the Ford Rouge plant even exists anymore, but, um, it was it was an amazing experience, and yeah, for for being a Tesla aficionado, as as I think you said, it was uh, it was like going to Mecca. What is it like? How do you get? In, how does that invitation work? Does, do they extend it to sort of random Tesla owners, or did you get a call um, from Elon and he was like, "Come on over"? No, no I, I haven't spent any time with Elon. He doesn't call me for advice. Um, he should sometimes. Sometimes <laughs> he should. Uh, we. Um, so the first I, I bought a Tesla and, and in the early days of buying a Tesla, so Tesla sort of came into, uh, you know, into prominence around the time we sold the company. And so those two forces of confluence met. It was kind of nice. Um, and in the earlier days of Tesla, when you bought one, you went and picked it up at the factory, which is like five miles from my house. So you go, you take a tour of the factory and then you pick up your car. And that was, that was kind of like a highlight of my life. That was pretty cool. That is super cool. And so he he's such a character too, yeah. but let me ask you a question. Would you ever in a million years get into one of those Hyperloop pods and go from San Francisco <laughs> to Los Angeles? 
I don't know, maybe, I, you know, like I, I, I want to say I've done dumber things, but maybe that I'm not. I think it'd be cool. And like, I like that he's pushing the limits on that. I mean, I just read that NASA ha- is signed, you know, awarded a contract to SpaceX for the, the first manned flight to moon in whatever it's been, 30 years or something like that. Like, how cool is that? Um, you know, the guy's, the guy is like a crazy mad genius and which I guess is, you know, we're talking, there are, there are other crazy mad geniuses in our life as you and I worked with one for a long time. Um, you know, you, you say like he makes great cars and he sends rockets to the moon or Mars and, you know, puts solar panels and also does stupid things like, you know, announces that he's selling his company for 420 because it's, you know, because 420. So it's, <laughs> I don't know. He's a, he's a, he's a nut job. Not cool. Yeah. I, I, so I agree. And look, it be, in order to hit home runs, you got to take big swings, right? Yeah. Uh, he's happened to hit a few of them. The SpaceX thing blew me away. I, we haven't been on the moon since before I was born. Right. Um, and so that is, that to me is, is wildly, wildly cool. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. We're coming up on time here. So I'm going to, do what I do, and I'm going to ask a final question. Around. Yeah, but it's a final question that's been asked before because, as it turns out, when I talked to Brian Dutt a couple of weeks ago, I caused quite a stir in Freewheel alumni <laughs> Slack circles around question answer and what the actual response would be. So tell me, in your honest opinion, in a street brawl, who wins, you or John? Okay, so number one, there's 100% certainty that I would win. Now, whether I win because we actually have the brawl or because the far more likely probability that John just doesn't show up because he forgot, his calendar wasn't working, he had childcare issues, he had a punctured lung, you know, he drank too much the night before, that's a much higher probability that I would win by default. But there's no doubt, no question in my mind I would win. I, that's the kind of confidence that I was expecting and that I like to hear. <laughs> and by the way, I'm pretty sure every free, freewheeler that exists will agree with me. There's yeah. Only- I mean, there's been reasonable consensus about that. Although yeah. I have to say if John shows, I do think we're us- underestimating how dirty he would fight. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And he, that's not to say I don't think you'd still win. I just do believe he would be fighting a little bit dirtier than you. He's the master of deception. So it's not to say that he couldn't make me think that I'm fighting. And then he brought a, brought a whole team of robots with him that all looked like him. And I started fighting the wrong robot. I suppose that could happen for sure. <laughs> fighting the wrong robot. <laughs> that feels like the right place to end. <laughs> Listen, man, this was phenomenal. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Good to talk to you. Thanks again to Doug for joining us this week on the pod. In honor of Doug's Detroit roots, here's Motown superstar Marvin Gaye with one of my favorites, Ain't That Peculiar. See you next time. Honey, you do me wrong, but still I'm crazy about you.